Good evening, Harvest. Uh, it is so good to be with you. Um, bring you greetings from Grace Fellowship Church. Thank you for your prayers. Just reflecting tonight, uh, it would be five years next week since I was installed. So it's hard to believe five years. Um, sometimes it feels longer, sometimes it feels a lot quicker than that. But uh, we have a lot to be thankful for as you have poured yourself into me and my family and, and our church. And so we come just full of gratitude again tonight uh, for what the Lord uh, has chosen to do in and through you and, and Grace Fellowship. I invite you to take your Bibles out this evening and turn with me to the Gospel of Isaiah. We're going to read together chapter 63, beginning at verse 15. Isaiah 63, beginning at verse 15. We'll take it through chapter 64, the 12 verses of that chapter been preaching through Isaiah at Grace Fellowship over the last uh, year, and we're almost, uh, we're almost to the finish line. So Isaiah 63 and verse 15, God's Word says to us, look down from heaven, Isaiah writes, and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for Him. You meet Him joyfully, who works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us 
so terribly. That ends the reading of God's Word. May He write its truth upon our hearts and minds here this evening. Well, uh, the message of my uh, sermon tonight is called A Prayer for Revival. A Prayer for Revival. Ray Ortland who's become one of my most trusted traveling companions through this terrain of Isaiah, uh, calls verse 1 of chapter 64, we've heard it twice now tonight, he calls it as good a description of revival as we'll find. As good a description of revival as we'll find. Why? Because what is revival but the coming down of God to us? The visitation of God in fresh power and grace and transformation, individually, corporately. The awakening of the the soul to the presence of God and the worth of God and the glory of God and who He is, which is something that the people in Isaiah's day desperately needed. And so Isaiah prays, in verse 1, oh, that you, God, would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Now, do we need revival in our day? I'm not sure we know what to do with revival. We hear of reports from Asbury College, and we're not sure what to make of it. We don't know what diagnosis to give it. Maybe we think uh, because there's lots of churches in West Michigan, we're doing just fine, and we don't need revival. If we do need revival, then why is it that I and we are so often slow to pray for it? But if revival is God coming down, if if revival is simply the visitation of God in power through His Word and by His Spirit, and especially in the gospel of His Son and the advancement of that gospel, if that's what we're asking God to do, then it seems to me like that's a prayer we can make every time, and, and God loves to hear it. Revive us, O Lord. Rend the heavens and come down. Fill this place. Fill this heart with more of yourself. That's what Isaiah is praying. And tonight we're going to look at this passage and this theme of revival under three headings, uh, beginning with the burden of his prayer, the burden of it. The, The prophet is clearly burdened, something weighing on him. What? We could boil it down to this. He's burdened by the reality of God's absence. He's burdened by the fact that God has withdrawn Himself. All he sees is the carnage of sin, his sin, his people's sin, the sins of the Babylonians, and he can't seem to make sense of it. He knows where God is. He's a good theologian. He confesses rightly that God is in the heavens and does whatever He pleases, but he's, he's frustrated that God sees but doesn't seem to respond. He knows, but Isaiah's wondering if he actually cares. How long are they going to be in this predicament of exile? How long are they going to be under the disciplined hand of God? And so he prays. In verse 15 of chapter 63, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Do you ever feel that way? 
You know God is real. You are trusting in the uh, reality of God, and, and yet life is hard and your circumstances are challenging. Maybe you're stuck in a particular besetting sin. Maybe things around you are unraveling, and you know God sees, uh, but, but you're starting to wonder if God is really for you, if He's behind you, if He knows what He's doing. And if He's, if he's going to do anything on your behalf, he's, if He's going to act, if He's going to answer your prayers… Isaiah, he's burdened, and, and his burden comes out in a series of questions. Uh, where are you, and, and why are you doing what you're doing, and, and how long is this going to continue? Going back to chapter 63 and verse 11, he asks, where is he who brought them, his people, up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Again, verse 15 of that same chapter, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me? Where is God? Why isn't He responding? Why isn't He acting? And it's just, it's not simply corporate, it's also personal for Isaiah. Where is your compassion for me? Isaiah feels confused. He feels in some ways abandoned. And here's the thing. God had withdrawn Himself in some regard from His people. That's what sin does. There's a separation, not ultimately, but there is this withdrawing. And so he asks in verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? It's almost like he's blaming God. Why are you hardening our heart? Why aren't you softening us? He knows God is not the author of sin. But he, he also knows that Israel's in this predicament of exile because of the hand of God's discipline on their own account. And yet, listen carefully, when we give ourselves over to repeated belligerent sin, when we refuse to change or surrender or heed God's Word or repent, eventually God will give us over. He'll let us wander and even, we could put it, harden our hearts so that we're in the wilderness, we're in exile. We're on dangerous ground, in other words, when we choose sin over God and refuse to hear His voice. At some point, God will discipline us, and part of that discipline is often a season of, of hardening. But let me say something within the context of Isaiah. I know we're just jumping in this evening. We're, we're not talking here in Isaiah 63 and 64 about those who are struggling with sin those who are battling indwelling sin, those who love Jesus and are resting in the promises of the gospel and yet find yourself in this fallen, broken world beset with indwelling sin and you're wrestling, you're fighting, you're engaged in the battle. This is not addressing those of us in that situation. It's talking here about the person or the community that has a blatant disregard for God. People who have drifted so far away uh, that in Isaiah's own words in verse 16, Abraham himself would not even recognize us, nor would Jacob. 
That, that's how far these people have wandered away from God's path. One says, uh, author says, if the ancient patriarchs could get into a time machine, hit the fast-forward button, and reappear among the people of God at Isaiah's time, Abraham and Jacob would look at them and say, who are you? Who are you? That's how bad it's gotten. If your Bible's still open, look with me at verse 6 of chapter 64 in what is a well-known verse for us Calvinists. Uh, Maybe you were uh, born and raised and you cut your teeth on verse 6 where the prophet says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or another translation says, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And many have argued that this is what all of our obedience essentially amounts to, nothing but a pile of dirty rags before God. But is that what God has in mind here in Isaiah 64? Is God just reminding us again of how far short we fall? Is He reminding us here in this text that He's constantly angry with us and disappointed in us, in our lack of perfect and perpetual obedience? Is he communicating here in verse 6 that he will constantly be disappointed with you, no matter how hard you try, regardless of the fact that, if, that you're resting in Jesus Christ, you love God, and you are by the Spirit walking, failing, falling short, but wrestling, struggling. And, and here's another reminder that you can never do enough and that God is displeased with you. Is that what's being communicated? And I don't think that's what Isaiah has in mind at all here. Of course, it's true that none of our righteousness is able to save us or make us worthy enough for God's acceptance. Only the righteousness of Christ can do that. But Isaiah is not here referring to godly people whose obedience isn't as perfect as it possibly could be. Here in Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, he is talking about a people who are are completely playing with religion. In fact, chapter 65 goes on to talk about how the Lord rejects such empty, hollow, religious sacrifices. Far from pleasing God, these sacrifices insult God. So, Kevin DeYoung is helpful in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness. He says, here, their righteous deeds were filthy rags because they weren't righteous at all. They looked good but were a sham, a literal smokescreen to cover up their unbelief and disobedience. And so Isaiah is clearly burdened. He's burdened by his, his own people's willful sin and disobedience, which they try to cover up by their religious behavior. He's equally burdened by the fact that his beloved city and temple had suffered at the hands of the Babylonians, to which he asks the question in verse 12 of chapter 64, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us? so terribly. In other words, how long is this going to go on? Or is this our fate? Is this our our new reality? Is this our future? Have we crossed the line with you? Are the promises that you've made with Abraham over? Are we now, because of our sin outside of your 
covenant of grace and your mercies? Is this our fate? Maybe that describes you tonight. I, I don't know your particular situation, most of you, but maybe you're wondering tonight, where do I stand in the presence of a holy God given my sin, given my pattern of sin? Chapter 64, verse 5 says, Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, a long time. And shall we be saved? Shall we be saved? That's the burden that he expresses, Isaiah, on on behalf of his people. But secondly, consider with me the then appeal of his prayer, the appeal of his prayer. On what basis does Isaiah make his appeal to God? Certainly not on the grounds of his people's merit, nor on the basis of his commitment to try harder and be a better person and turn over a new leaf. But notice what he does. Here in this prayer, he asks the living God to come down, to return to rend the heavens and to make His power known and to act on behalf of His people. It's, it's not so much that he's, he's asking for strength to return Himself to God as much as it's He's asking God to return to His people, to come, to visit. The question is, why should God answer this prayer? Why should God come? Why should God uh, visit His people? Why should He answer you when all you've done is lived out the fantasy of your little kingdom of yourself and placed yourself on the throne as Israel was doing all the while ignoring Him? Why should God give one iota of what we have to say? Well, here's, here's why, and, and, and here is Isaiah's only appeal that he makes. I read it in the text three times. Did you listen and hear it and notice it? He repeats it three times, twice in chapter 63 and verse 16, once in chapter 64, verse 8. Here it is. Here's why. Here's the appeal that he makes. Because you are our Father. That's why. That's who you are. Not because we deserve it. Because you've made it so. Isaiah is saying, because you've adopted us. You wanted us. We are yours. Remember Isaiah 43 and verse 1, it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And here later on in the book, Isaiah is is almost reminding God who he is. And not just that, but as their father, what he's done for them in the past. It it wasn't as if Israel had to persuade or convince or coerce or manipulate God to do these things. He did these things uh, on their behalf all on his own. Why? To make his name known. 
to make His gracious name known, His sovereign name known, His merciful name known among the nations. And that's what God wants, uh, that's what Isaiah wants to do again, what he wants God to do again on their behalf, to come down and make His name known. So chapter 64, verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No ear has, eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for Him. God acts for those who wait for Him. God acts for us on our behalf in His infinite mercy and wisdom I love how Ray Ortland puts it here. He says, what does God's work in the past teach us? Not how predictable He is, but how surprising He is. He never acts out of character. He never contradicts His own word, but He is never at a loss for new ways to break through. Israel, he says, was cornered at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army was bearing down on them. What happened? The sea opened up. Nobody was expecting that. The whole world was stumbling in darkness with no way forward. What happened? The Savior of the world was born in a barn. Nobody expected that. We were condemned in our inexcusable guilt without a defense. What happened? Our judge endured our penalty at the cross. Nobody was expecting that. He was dead and buried. All the hopeful expectations He had created were exploded. What happened? He rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and began pouring out His Spirit to make His murderers into His friends. Ortland says, nobody was expecting that. That's what prayer for revival sounds like. It asks God to be who He is, to act on our behalf to be the God who can do above and beyond all that we could ever even ask or imagine, to do the impossible. Why? Because He's our Father. He's our Father. And good fathers love acting on behalf of their children. That is how Isaiah appeals, on the basis of who God is. And if you think about it, that's, that's the only basis of our appeal as well. Yet Isaiah is acting on behalf of his wayward people. He, he's, he's, a, he's a representative. You and I are not Isaiah. So, so who is our Isaiah? Who is making an appeal to God on my behalf, on your behalf? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who intercedes for us. What does He pray in heaven? He prays to the Father that the Father might remember who He is toward His people, not on the basis of our goodness, but on the merits of Christ's obedience, His substitutionary death, His physical resurrection, His acts in history. In fact, Isaiah's prayer here becomes the prayer of Jesus for His people. Just as Isaiah prays, so can Jesus pray, for you are our Father. You are our Father. 
Isn't that how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Our Father in heaven, our Father, but also our Father. Our corporately, covenantally, Larry Wilson uh, taught us this at Grace Fellowship. I had never thought of it this way. Yes, our in the corporate sense, covenantal sense, but also in the sense that as Jesus can pray this to the Father, so can we. Our Father. The Father's always been Jesus' Father. That's not always been the case for us. But in the gospel, by faith in Him, we can pray with Jesus and know that Jesus is praying on our behalf. These are your children. You're our Father. All that I have won is for them. In fact, go back with me now to Isaiah 64, verses 5 and 6. Many people conclude that nothing we do is pleasing to God, that because our works are tainted with imperfections, that means that God is somehow annoyed with our, our efforts, our attempts, and He's therefore annoyed with us, that we can never do enough, ever, 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 no matter how hard we try. Some of you wrestle with that because of the way you were raised, perhaps, or because we just have a, a, a bad view of, of what God our Father is like, and we think He's always disappointed. We, we can never do enough. Guess what happens in that situation? At some point, if we're convinced that God will never be pleased with our weak attempts at obedience, we're going to stop trying. And while it's absolutely true that our works will never earn God's acceptance, for those whose acceptance is, is grounded in the gospel of God's Son, Jesus, who are looking to Jesus by faith, our Father is absolutely pleased with our responses to His grace, however weak they might be. Look with me at the text, chapter 64 and verse 5, which says that, God, Father, You meet Him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember You in Your ways. In other words, God loves it when we offer up obedience that flows out of gratitude for the salvation that He has given to us all by grace. Kevin DeYoung sums this up so well when he says this, why do we imagine God to be so unmoved by our heartfelt attempts at obedience? He is, after all, our heavenly Father, what sort of father looks at his daughter's homemade birthday card and complains that the color scheme is all wrong? What kind of mother says to her son after he gladly cleaned the garage but put the paint cans on the wrong shelf, this is worthless in my sight? What sort of parent rolls his eyes when his child falls off the bike on the first try? He says, there is no righteousness that makes us right with God except for the righteousness of Christ, but for those who have been made right with God by grace alone through faith alone and therefore have been adopted into God's family, many of our righteous deeds are not only not filthy in God's eyes, they are exceedingly sweet 
precious and pleasing to him. You are not saved by your works. You cannot be. But if you're here tonight and you love Jesus and you're resting in him for your salvation, know this, the weak but sincere attempts as we struggle in the Christian life to offer up our bodies and our our lives as a living sacrifice, God is not in heaven with his, His arms crossed, mad at you, disappointed in you, frustrated with you, annoyed with you, and all of your imperfections. He is pleased. He's pleased ultimately on account of His Son, Jesus Christ, our elder brother, but He's also pleased as we, by faith, seek to honor Him. Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 14, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. He knows your frame. He remembers that you're dust. As you, as it were, scribble that, that picture for him, he is pleased just like if, if one of my children, when especially they were younger, come and, and present a, a gift to me, a, a present for me, and it's outside the lines, and, and it doesn't look good compared to a professional artist, of course I'm going to love it. He's my son. She's my daughter. I'm going to display it on the fridge or at church, at the office, by my desk. God loves His children. And so some of us need to be reminded of this this evening. This text in verse 6, which we love to run to and say, see, can't do it anyways. We're always going to fall short before the bar of God. Yes, when it comes to the righteousness which God requires of us, yes, we will fall short. But as we're in Christ, as we're found in Him, we walk by faith and we, we offer Him weak offerings, but as our Father, He is pleased. That's His appeal. I don't have anything else to say, Isaiah is saying. I know we don't deserve it. I know we haven't been good enough. And I'm not convinced these people are going to change. But you're our Father. Show compassion show mercy, remember who we are, remember your pursuit of us, and come work in this hard heart of mine and meet with your people. Well, we've seen the burden, we've heard the appeal, let's consider lastly and very briefly the answer to his prayer. Chapter 64 ends not with an answer, but with another question. Will you keep silent and afflict, and afflict us so terribly? And, and we might be tempted to conclude that all we have here are questions without answers. We're left to just grow up in the dark, not sure of anything, without hope, without conviction that God will act on our behalf. But brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we do have the answer. 
in an ultimate sense, God has come down. How? When? In the second person of the Trinity. God has answered Isaiah's ultimate prayer. That is God's answer to our deepest longings. That is His response to the questions, where are you and why are you doing this and will you keep silent forever? And the unequivocal answer is, I've already proven myself to you. I've I've come to you. I've acted when you've least expected it. And I've come in the most astonishing ways, not in the same power that you expected, but cloaked in your very humanity and, and born in a manger. And then I hung on a cross for sinners just like you. Of course, this this gospel message doesn't answer every particular question or burden or remove every struggle. We still live in this fallen, broken world, but, but God has responded to our greatest burden and our deepest need, that of our sin. He has responded. And if God is for us in Christ, who can be against us? And guess what? as Isaiah is is pointing us to over and over again, he's going to come again. He's going to visit a second time. And when he comes again, he will act on behalf of all his blood-bought adopted sons and daughters. He will make all the bad things come untrue. He will punish all workers of iniquity. He will dwell among us, his people. You see, this prayer for revival is only for a period of time. We long now for God to visit us with His power and grace, and I hope that's, that's a, a prayer that we can make regularly before Sunday and during the week. Lord, come down, rend the heavens, visit us by Your Word and Spirit. Do things here that we could never imagine. Advance Your kingdom through us. Meet with us personally and powerfully so that men and women and boys and girls from within the church and outside the church come to know the living God for who He really is in all of His glory and all of His mercy. But one day, that prayer will be unnecessary when He rends the heavens and comes down for good. And how do we know that He'll make all things right? and chase away every last remaining vestige of sin and fear and pain and suffering because He's our Father, and He's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say with the psalmist, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to Your Word. Revive me according to Your Word. Work, visit, come show up. And He has, and He continues to do so by His Word and through His Spirit for the advancement of His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this reminder tonight of who You are. Lord, revive us according to Your Word. Lord, reach this cold heart of mine and ours Lord, set it on fire that we might respond to your life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming word. Lord, 
rend the heavens and come down and visit us. We thank you that ultimately this prayer has been answered in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that He from heaven through His Word and Spirit is is continuing to answer this prayer even today on the Lord's Day as His Word has been unleashed. And one day, Jesus, You will come again a second time, a last time, and make all things right. So, Lord, may we walk by faith. May we come expectantly to You, believing that You will do above and beyond what, all that we ask or imagine. And, Lord, we thank You that You are our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ by faith in Him. We thank You that You've given us a picture tonight of, of Your character, of Your fatherly disposition. Lord, that, that You're not in, in the heavens and just constantly displeased with us and, and frustrated by us and annoyed with us, Lord. We know we come uh, beset with sin and covered in weakness, Lord, and, and, and our attempts are often full of, of pride and full of all sorts of different things. And yet, Lord, we thank You that You are changing us, and we thank You that as we come to You as little children… You are pleased, and you are glorified, and so continue to, to show us who you are. Lord, take us out of our sin and misery and, and show us freedom, show us a better way, show us what it looks like to live a life pleasing to you, and, 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 and help us to help others. Revive us, O Lord. Revive me. Revive Harvest Church. Revive Grace Fellowship. Revive our marriages. Revive our families. Revive us, please, and we will give you all the praise. And so we thank you for hearing us, for you are our Father, and we are your children. Saved by grace, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing song this evening is called, I Will Wait For You. I Will Wait For You. It's a setting of Psalm 130. Uh, listen to the words as you sing. Focus on the words. But let's stand to sing, I Will Wait For You.
but we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the fact that God is our Father and the Father of our Lord Jesus. Uh, His Word says to us, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.